So today we're going to return to Malachi after sort of a one-sermon excursus to delve deeper into the fear of the Lord. That was a prominent theme in Malachi 2. But we're still in Malachi 2, and I'm hoping to finish today as we take a final look at the Lord's dealing with the priests in this chapter. And if you recall, the Lord has been rebuking the priests for their half-hearted, going-through-the-motions worship, their half-hearted, going-through-the-motions service to God and his people. The priests are giving the least they can, And they're fostering a spirit among the people of giving the least they can. And they're leading the people astray. And God is angry. And he rebukes them. He warns them that the punishment is coming upon them. They don't repent. And and he contrasts them, not just warns them, but he contrasts them with the best of their forefathers. These priests that he personifies in one priest named Levi. And he says about Levi the following. My covenant with him, this was the good priest prototype of of ancient times. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This morning, I want to focus specifically on these verses in 6 and 7. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Two weeks ago, we we drew from the idea of the fear of God, the awe of the Lord, fueling this priesthood. Today, we're going to delve deeper into this issue of what the priesthood did in God's sight in the past that was good, and what was going on that was wrong, in regard to what was coming out of their mouths in particular the lips of the priests that are supposed to guard knowledge. Before we go too far, I want to go right to just a a new covenant implication on this word priests. The new covenant church is not the old covenant nation of Israel. There's differences in how we do things. We know more of who God is and what his revelation is to us in Jesus Christ than they did. One of the implications of this is that the new covenant has no more special class of priests separate from the people who offer sacrifices on behalf of the people as a special class of clergy. Some of you guys might have grown up in in more traditional Catholic or Anglican churches where they call someone priest. But the truth is you don't see that language in the New Testament ever applied to a special set-apart group of men 
who we might call the clergy, there is in the Bible one priesthood shared by all believers called the priesthood of all believers or nation of priests, depending on which passage you're going to. We all together offer our lives to God as priests. We make sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise and trust, seeking him to walk in good works that his Holy Spirit gives us power to walk in. But as regards to sin and offerings for sin, which is what these Old Testament priests, this special class did with these animal sacrifices, that's over. There is one priest for us. There's one great high priest with regards to our sin, Jesus Christ. His priesthood is the only unique priesthood that's left in the universe, different than ours. He has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, a sacrifice we could never offer for ourselves. And now he sits at the right hand of God and he continues to be our great high priest, our only great high priest. Hebrews 7:25 says, because he lives forever, that's Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him for he always lives to make intercession for them. By virtue of that, once for all time sacrifice for sin, by virtue of that sacrifice, based on that sacrifice, in a sense, continuing to look at and draw from that sacrifice, once for all, Jesus intercedes for you and for me. That's what we sang about this morning. He ever lives for me to intercede. He's always doing that, just as he did for Peter, as we looked at last week. So that through all the ways we may falter, just as Peter faltered, our faith may never fully fail, and we will make it into his arms. That's what he does, interceding for us, keeping us from giving up on him through his intercession. That's a new covenant revelation that we have that the old covenant wasn't able to give the people the picture of that we have now. But wh while the covenants have this difference in priests as separate office from the people, an office that no longer divides me from you or you from someone else, and instead we all look to our great high priest Jesus, there is a connection between the old covenant priest's ministry that we're gonna see today in this guarding of knowledge and the fruit of their lips and the new covenant role of elder or pastor. And I'll be using those two terms synonymously today, elder, pastor. And I wanna focus on this a little more than we did a few weeks ago. So let's go back to Malachi and we'll, we'll, we'll move from Malachi and the old covenant to the new covenant. We'll see the connection, I hope. Again, verses six and seven from Malachi. This is the priest of old. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. What you see here in Malachi in these verses is this huge emphasis on the ministry of words, teaching, counsel, instruction. Look what the priests do with their lips. 
True instruction was in his mouth. They know God's truth, and they bring it to the people in such a way that it instructs, it guides. It's true. It's reliable. It's sound. Second thing, no wrong is found in his lips. There's not only true instruction, but it's not diluted and impurified by false instruction. The priest uses God's truth to turn many from iniquity, which is another word for sin. That's what these words do. They keep them walking towards God and away from death and sin and destruction. And in a note behind this, which we'll see later, we'll get into more, is the priest, note there in verse 6, the priests lived in peace and uprightness. Their lives had integrity that backed up their words. This helped people trust what they were saying. And notice, too, in verse 7, the, the priest's lips guard knowledge. They guard it. They, they don't just neutrally offer sound teaching. There is this guarding, this protecting. The priest knows there are things in his heart and in the hearts of his hearers that want to pervert, ignore, twist, water down the truth. And so he must set his heart to guard the truth against his own heart and against the hearts of his hearers. He views the Lord with fear and with awe. And the result of that is that he guards and protects God's truth. And because of this, the Lord says, people should seek instruction from his mouth. There's a quality to this knowledge and to the reverence with which he guards it, such that the Lord says, hey, this is what should happen. <laughs> this is what people should be able to do in my gathering. They should be able to rely on and seek out the, the thoughts of the priests. They should, there should be this kind of dynamic going on. They, they should think highly enough of the person's understanding and have enough confidence in the integrity of his life that they're not gonna, hopefully they're not going to say this priest is the Messiah or perfect, but they don't, they don't say, oh, forget it, whatever. They, they should be able to seek it. They should seek it. And why, of all reasons, verse 7 concludes with, because he's a messenger of the Lord. That's the root of it all. He's simply a messenger. He speaks for somebody else. That's what a messenger is. A messenger speaks for someone else. And this is the way the priests viewed their mission, the, the, the good priests of old. They know it wasn't their thoughts they're supposed to bring primarily, but God's thoughts that matter. It's not his message that matters. It's the Lord's message that matters. It's not his opinion. It's the Lord's opinion. So what's the corollary in the New Testament? What's the connection? When we come to the New Testament, Though there is no more unique special class of priest, there is this role called elder or pastor. And in Acts, we see that everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, they would, when they'd start a church, they'd come back to the church after the church had matured and grown. And they would set up elders to shepherd or pastor the people. I suppose they waited because in these little churches that were starting, they needed maturity to, to take root and to blossom. And then they would come back and they'd set up elders. And Paul would send Timothy or Titus to these churches and say, get these people together and, and build up some elderships. Group of pastors who can shepherd these people. And Paul would list traits required of these shepherds. And these traits are required of shepherds but recognize they're, they're actually commanded for all of us. 
The shepherds or elders or pastors are supposed to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not drunkards, we'd call alcoholics, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not always looking to try to get in fights with people, not lovers of money, not greedy. They have to be able to steward their own family well, keeping their kids disciplined and in check, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not a bully, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy. This is analogous to Malachi's description of the priests who walked in uprightness and peace. This walk of integrity is essential to any elder pastor ministry. We all instinctively know, don't we all know, that a spiritual leader who lacks integrity, who clearly lives in unrepentance in some significant area of his life, is a a destructive immorality. We all just intuitively note that. You know, walk the talk. Hypocrites. You know, these ideas aren't hard to get. God, as as a... pastor, elder in this church, he does not expect me to be perfect. And, I, and I could, we could talk about how, what these words mean for qualifications. They leave room for imperfections. They certainly do. Yet, yet there is to be a quality in my walk with Jesus that you can see, that, that you can say, as far as you can see, because you can't know my life perfectly, just like I can't know yours. But as far as you can see, I believe that guy is trying to follow Jesus. I think he's trying to follow Jesus in such a way that I can that I should too. Peter says that elder pastors are supposed to be examples to the flock. And it's an awkward thing and and a, a, a bit of a fearful thing for me to say this because I know my weaknesses. I know my temptations. I know my failures. Not too few of you know some of those things as well about me as you've walked with me for years or been my friend or you're in my DR group like Jesse and Luke or you've trying to help me pastor the church like Mike or you've suffered some of my foibles and weaknesses. My heart is very imperfect, but I can't be a pastor, and I shouldn't be a pastor if I don't strive to follow Jesus with integrity. And if I don't do this, great harm will result. Great harm for me and God's discipline, and very likely to the flock, as we just saw a few weeks ago in the sad Shocking story of Ravi Zacharias. When leaders no longer fear the Lord as they should, trust is destroyed. God's name is profaned. And so character, the pursuit of God, again, not perfection, but an earnest pursuit of God is required of elders, as well as it's commanded for all the people. But there's more than character that's required of an elder. An elder pastor is called to shepherd or pastor, the people of God. Shepherd and pastor are the same words in the Greek. It is elders who pastor people. That's what their job is. They can do this in different ways and in different quantities. Mike's been an interim elder for us for several years. He doesn't preach on Sundays. He pastors more through helping, making me decision, making, helping me make decisions, giving me feedback about my life, and counseling some of you in different situations. My pastoring role is more centrally filled with this teaching ministry that we see. 
And, and that's primarily in the scriptures a central way that pastors are supposed to shepherd people. Peter writes, the elders among you be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. So I'm called to shepherd you, to watch over you. But how do I do that? Am I supposed to go through your emails? Go through your mail and sit in your home at dinner time? And Well, obviously, that's not what I can or should do. So what do I do to shepherd God's people as a pastor or any pastor, any elder? You Shepherds in the past would... Like literal shepherds, they'd use something. They'd use a staff or a rod. That's not what I do. That would be super weird. (laughs) Pastors and elders are supposed to shepherd with God's truth. With God's truth. This is what we see in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3. Among the requirements of the elders. An elder must be able to teach. This able to teach is unique to the elder role. There's another role in the church that's spelled out explicitly called deacons. And I I hope someday we'll get to the place where we can establish those roles more clearly. We have folks who are living and working as deacons now in our church. We don't call them that. But the deacon is distinguished from the elder, not by character, but by task. You won't find in the task of the deacon this role of teaching. You only find that in the elder who's supposed to lead the church with teaching. We're called to be able to teach. Titus 1 says it this way. An elder, quote, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what an elder shepherds with. He shepherds pastors with the trustworthy word of God. Our Bibles. That's why we want to take everything back to the Bible. I want to preach from the Bible. We want to take prophetic praises, prayers at our ministry mic back to the Bible. The trustworthy word of God. In Acts 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus. And it's the last time he believes he's going to see them. And he makes a very emotional speech and an emotional time. He gathers all the leaders of the church together, these elders. And he's trying to leave them with a great charge, a great, a great equipping that will last with him after he leaves. And he exhorts them from the memory of his example to them. And here's what he says. And I want you to listen as as I go through these passages to how much of the ministry of God's truth, of God's word, is embedded in his exhortation. He says this, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in the public from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I brought the truth of God in Jesus Christ to you again and again. And then he says, by virtue of this, because of this, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was innocent of their blood. That is, if they went away from God, if they left the Lord, he was innocent because he had not shrunken from his duty to proclaim who God was to them, to proclaim God's promises, to proclaim God's warnings. He brought it all, the whole counsel of God, he said. He didn't pick and choose what he liked. And this absolved him of responsibility for their sin because he had given them all of God's heart. And in that context, Paul says to them, to these pastor elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. That's a watcher over. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says, watch over these people. Jesus bought them with his blood. They're precious to him. You're precious to him. He bought you with his blood. It doesn't matter first and foremost what I think of you, how I'm doing with you and my emotions. It's what God thinks of you. And he says you're precious to him. He bought you with his blood. He paid for you with his son's life. And that's how I'm supposed to look at you. Not, oh, they're not, I don't do that. I wish they, well, why can't they be more? <laughs> and he says this, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking. How did Paul shepherd? He spoke. How did he want the elders to shepherd? Fundamentally, he wanted them to speak God's truth. What will these men who rise up do? They'll speak too. And they'll use lies. They'll twist their words. They'll twist God's words to draw disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish, teaching every one of you. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace. See, do you see the word of God and the truth of God all over this charge? Paul is saying, guard this church, watch over this church with God's truth. When the wolves come in, what will they use? A perversion of God's truth. So hold on to the word of his grace. <clears throat> Why did Paul, why did God want people shepherded with his word? Why did he want it in Malachi's time and why in our time? I, it's not rocket science. It's because we need it. We need the truth of God again and again and again. From the Garden of Eden onward through history, what has destroyed God's people? 
What was the first thing Satan did when he came upon Eve? Did he try to freak her out with demonic possession or blood coming out of the trees or write stuff on the mirror? No, he, he just twisted God's words. He just lied to her about God. She believed his lie and the husband who God gave her to watch over her, we might call him the first elder, the first shepherd created anyway. What did he do? He did nothing. He stood back and let Satan lie to her and let her believe the lie and she was destroyed and he was destroyed along with her. They were both devoured with lies. This week, the kids and I got talking about angels. And I, don't, I can't remember how we got talking about angels in our little time. But Matthew, uh, my seven-year-old, I think it was Matthew, he said, essentially, do angels and demons fight in heaven? You know, we've watched some of these shows, like, uh, I don't remember what it is, but um, w- one of these um, Bible cartoons, and it's really, like, really good graphics, but they have these angels and demons that are like, with swords and fire and lightning in heaven. And then, then the Bible text, they do the Bible story on earth. And so on earth, it's all like Abraham and offering Isaac and trust issues and faith issues. But up in the heavens, it's lightning bolts and fire, you know, and swords. And so this, this picture came to mind of like angels and demons battling with lightning bolts across the clouds. But I don't, and I don't know, you know, what's going on up there exactly, specifically. The Bible doesn't give us a clear picture, so I want to be careful here. But I don't imagine this is how spiritual beings fight. I, 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 if I had to say how do they fight, I'd say at least they fight this way. They fight the same way that Satan and Jesus fought in the desert. They fight with truth and lies. They fight the same way that Satan fought with Eve and Adam in the the garden. Truth and lies. Who is God really? Did he really say this? What is he really like? Is he really for you? Is he really good? Can you really trust him? His word, it can't mean that. And who are you? What should you really think of yourself? You need this. In that first garden moment, that's what he went after, God's truth. He told her God was not really for her. He really wasn't good. He couldn't really be trusted. He shouldn't follow him anymore. He's holding out. He's holding out from you. Just take it now. Take it now. He's holding out. And not only was his heart not good, but his warnings weren't true. You really won't die. If you disobey, you'll actually get what you need. You'll get what God is keeping from you. So take it now. It won't matter. Millennia later, thousands and thousands of years later in the desert comes Satan to the Son of God, the second Adam. What does he do? 
If you're really God's son, take what belongs to you, Jesus. It belongs to you. Take all the kingdoms of the world now. Don't sacrifice. It belongs to you now. I'll give you what you want. Indeed, what you deserve. But you don't need to do it your father's way. And I think that's primarily the same battle that's going on today. Truth and lies. The greatest battle. So pastors, elders are called to battle for the church the same way that Jesus fought Satan and how Adam should have fought for Eve with truth. Not twisted truth. Not taking scriptures and using them in perverted ways, but the truth rightly said. When Paul discussed the battle of his ministry, he said this. This is the the fight that Paul fought. This is his spiritual warfare um, summary. For though we live, I do have this passage. For though we live in the world, thanks Brando, we do not wage war as the world does. How does the world wage war? They, they, swords and shields and clubs and arrows. He says, no, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ so what are the strongholds that Paul demolishes are they tanks and gunneries and big fortresses they're arguments this isn't who God is says the argument God didn't really say this, says the argument. You aren't really this in Christ, says the argument. No, pastors, we we demolish them. He says we're up against pretensions that, that set themselves up against what? Against castles? Against armies? No. Pretensions, that means lies, falsehoods, arrogant boasts that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, who he really is. We take captive what? Hostages? No, we take captive thoughts. We take captive ideas and we make them obedient to Christ. We put them through the filter of who God is and who we are in Christ. In other words, Paul says, I don't fight with swords and bows and arrows. Satan, because Satan is not after your body primarily. He's after your heart. He's after your heart. He wants to control the desires of your heart and the fears of your mind. And he does this by lying to you about God and lying to you about you and lying to you about the world. And so Paul says, I'm gonna fight his lies with God's truth, with the knowledge of his beauty and his grace and his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness. I'm gonna fight with his promises And I'm going to protect you with his warnings. Satan isn't just bad. He's not just cruel. He's not just mean. He's the father of what? He's the father of lies. Sin isn't just bad and destructive. Hebrews says it's deceitful. It lies to us. Conversely, Jesus says the truth will be really great to hear. The truth will be proper and sound. No, the truth will set you free. Jesus said, Father, on the night he was betrayed and crucified, he prayed, he said about you, 
He said, for his people, he said, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. From start to finish, brothers and sisters, our salvation is begun and finished. It is birthed and sustained. It is conceived and matured through Holy Spirit-empowered, God-glorifying, God-revealing, hope-giving, rescue-giving, love-producing, seeing of truth, understanding of truth, believing in truth. Ephesians 1.13 tells us how our salvation begins. Listen. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.22-23 tells it how, it how that salvation keeps going. He says, he has now reconciled you in his body, of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith. That is the truth about Jesus and the truth about you in Jesus. Firmly established and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The truth of Jesus came to them. It gave birth to their new man. And they held on to it. And they held on to it. And they held on to it. We're saved by Jesus through coming to see and love the truth about Jesus. And we're kept by Jesus as we continue to hold on and to love the truth about Jesus. And bringing us back to Peter. And what we talked about last week. If I had to sum up Jesus' intercessory ministry, what he's doing right now in heaven for you, I think all that we've been talking about is what Jesus does, what he's interceding for you about, that you would see and be able to keep seeing the truth about him. And that you would not give up a sincere trust in his heart for you, in his promises for you, in his warnings to guard you. Like, not just as an intellectual exercise. I'm not talking about a simple doctrinal ascent, like, I believe in these things. You know, James says that the demons believe and shudder. He talks about a kind of faith that's just superficial. Yeah, I believe he was the son of God. No, Jesus is protecting your trust in him. That he really is. And that he really loves you. And that he is really worth not giving up on. That his blood has really covered all of your sin. That he really does have power for you to not Let go of him. He really does have power to give you, to keep you from giving up on him and running into 
the enemy's hands. That kind of trust that's willing to suffer for him if need be. That kind of trust that continues to have hope through all the ups and downs and a kind of joy that circumstances can't take away. Remember what we saw Jesus say to Peter. Peter, you're going to blow it, but I have prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. I think that's what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Father, based on my once and for all sacrifice, let their faith not fail. Don't let them give up on me. Don't let them give up on me. And so you come back to him after you fail. And you come back to his people. And you come back to his word. Because again and again, Jesus is interceding for you to keep you from failing and falling away from him completely. There are many things I wish I could do better and faster as an elder pastor, like from getting the children's ministry team going again for the reopening, hopefully, to helping. Like I think there's some things we have to do with our constitution to repair them, to being just a better delegator, a better equipper. Um, e- even when I'm not battling sin in my heart, which I'm always battling, I am deficient in ways that I wish I wasn't. But of all the things I think biblically I must do as a pastor elder, it's to guard the truth and to see that as far as it depends on me, you hear the truth when you come here together. And that when I meet with you or talk with you, you you get truth. And that requires that you give me time to study and prepare. That's part of why you pay my salary is to, to, so that I have time to devote myself to truth. That's one of the reasons I, I believe it's important for us to be together on Sundays and that you not make it a habit of neglecting the preaching of God's word. Because with it, I'm trying to watch over you with truth such that you see it and are built up in it. And I hope by his Holy Spirit encouraged in it, lovingly challenged in it if it needs to be. This is central to a pastor's duty to be a means of Jesus washing God's bride through the cleansing of the word. And woe to me if I try to wash you in my own word. Woe to any pastor, elder, who tries to wash Jesus' bride with his own word. I don't mean use his own words or try to paraphrase or use illustrations to unpack and reveal God's truth. I mean, when, when he or she, when he, and now she particularly, another hole I can't get out of right now, but I know my pastoring could be destroyed by adultery, pornography, lying, a violent temper, but I'm just as afraid, if not more afraid, that my care for you would be destroyed by much more subtly just neglecting the truth of God for the sake of short-term ease and praise that I might 
just week after week, month after month, seek in trying to find your approval and comfort and trying to justify my own laziness or disobedience, that I would start to pervert or twist what God wants to say to you, what he's trying to say to me. That I might just stop wanting to talk about the need for his blood that turns away his wrath. That I would soften or minimize things the Lord says that are not pleasant or easy to hear. Things about hell and an eternal damnation that is real and terrible for all who refuse to love the truth. Things like the non-negotiable need for faith in Christ in order to have eternal peace with God so that I can make God more palatable to you, more manageable to you in the world. Soften and minimize things like his sovereignty over all things, including the design of men and women, what that means for marriage, singleness, what that says about homosexuality or transgenderism, and what believing those things and not believing other things might mean for your jobs or your financial security in the future. Or fail to talk to you guys about the idolatry of money and then the neglect of the poor. Because, of course, in a conservative church like ours, we have our eyes open to certain things that we all are repulsed by, maybe, but we're maybe fooled by other things that another less conservative person might not be fooled by racism, poverty. Treatment of, treatment of immigrants. I, probably just like many of you, I, I don't like confrontation. I don't like saying hard things. I don't like not being liked. But if I'm to be a messenger of God, whose words you should listen to, then I don't get to decide what I want to say to you because I'm going to be asked to give an account for what I was supposed to say to you. So what do you do with all this? What do we do with all this? Lord, help me be brief. <clears throat> First of all, I want you to know, this is not an advertisement for me personally, but this is an advertisement for, if nothing else, the need for the, a kind of pastor that you want to have in your life whether it's now or the future or wherever you go. But I think the Bible does want you to have a pastor or pastors better, better, pastors, plural, in your life, elders in your life. Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that God gave some to be pastors, pastor teachers to God's people to equip them and build them up so that they no longer be tossed to and fro by false teaching but then instead they'd start to mature and grow strong in the knowledge of the Son of God. So God calls you to have that in your life. But of course, can't you get this from John Piper and Tim Keller and Tony Evans in your car radio? Yes. To some degree, I think you really can. And you can get it also, and you should get it from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll talk about that as we close in just a moment. But there's also 
this role of pastor, teacher, elder. God says that he wants you to have that in his life. He wants you to have that in your life because they have to watch over you in a community of faith, in a local church. Hebrews 13 says this. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. (laughs) What in the world? (laughs) They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So obey and submit to them so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. What in the world? Aren't those the weirdest things you could hear in a church today? I mean, maybe some of you guys are like, I heard that every Sunday in my church. I hope you didn't. I want to make something really clear about this. The only right I have to call you to submit is the same right that you have to call me to submit. We're both called to call each other to submit to the word of God. The only right I have to call you to submit is the same right you have to call me to submit, and that's the word of God. But here's the thing. It's my job to do it. That's what I'm doing right now. It's my job to each week and in your life call you to submit. It's not your job to do that. You should be doing that. What I mean is it's my, it's my vocational role. It is what an elder is. I, I don't have any right to request anything of you than that you obey Jesus, but that's my job. It's to call you to obey Jesus. See what I'm saying? You can do that too. You can or cannot do that. I always have to do that. So I, I and I don't mean that I, I that I, I could never. If I'm running a ministry team, hey, could you play this? Could you do this today? I, you know, we all have different roles and teams that that we might direct people with. But if in my pastoral role as an as a pastor of this church, I tell you what car to buy or what house to buy or who specifically to marry, because that has happened in the church. In, in churches, in, in history, or that you must go to this school and not to that school, or that you have to go to the mis- mis- mission field and not, you should lovingly rebuke me and very likely find a new pastor if I start doing that kind of thing. That's not what he's talking about here. Remember, how do pastors watch over a church? They use the word of God, and so I'm called to watch over your soul to see that you're walking according to God's word, not my preferences. But also, this, this, this is what John Piper and Tony Evans in your car try to do, but, but what they can't do is pray for you. They can't know your specific needs. They can't see you walk away from the church and stop coming week after week after week. They don't hear about your battle with this thing and aren't called to go after you in particular. God gives elders and pastors to give an account for you. The end of my life, this is freaky to me and this is one of the reasons why I'm always wondering you know Lord should I be doing this how long should I be doing this Lord please help me know I should be doing this because I'm gonna have to give an account for the church to say this is what happened to Amy Albert you know we talked about this before where did Rob go did you follow up with him did you go after him what happened to him why did why did Why did Caitlin get a divorce? Was that right? Did you tell her that that was... Why didn't, why didn't you let <laughs> Dorothy, you know, or... I'm trying to think of names that aren't names in your mind, you know. <laughs> well, why didn't you... 
Or, or conversely, why did you force Sabrina to stay with her husband? Why did you force her to? She had biblical grounds. You hounded her and called the church to discipline her. But she was, she was, it, it was, she was right to leave that marriage. I, I, and by the way, I think there are very limited grounds for, I'm not, these holes. The Bible has reasons to divorce and it has reasons why you should not get divorced. It's my job to help you see that, right? I'm just saying that I'm going to have to give an account for the people in my church. But how can I do this if we don't know if we're committed to each other in that kind of dynamic? Like th This is one of the reasons why church membership, as unglamorous as it is, is really important. Pastors can't give an account for you if they don't know that you're supposed to be in their care. And so church membership is just a mechanism among, to, to, to seek to make that among many other important things about church membership. That's not the only thing that's important about it. It's, it's to seek to make that clear and to give clarity about something that's really vital, which is from one end, you, you guys not straying or being allowed to stray without someone going after you. And from my end, me being able to say when God gives me asked me to give an account for you. Oh, yeah, they were in my church. They were committed to me as a pastor. I was committed to them as a member. But the deeper implication is that wherever you go as a believer, God calls you to either be a pastor or be watched over by one. To seek that out. I know that's not always possible. There are times and seasons where that isn't necessarily always available. But, but by and large, certainly in our in our area, it is available, I think. And, and if it's not here, if, if, if I'm not the right pastor, if we're not the right elder team, you know, there are some ways that you guys know we, we've struggled and had to rebuild, and we're in kind of a rebuilding season, several years of this. And if for whatever reason, it's just not the right fit for you, I want to help you. And I'm sure Mike feels the same way. Find the right fit for you. You might like being here for relationships. You might like the spirit of the church. Or even sometimes you might even like my preaching. But if you know deep down, if you feel this is not the right church for you from a pastoral point of view, that's not the only reason why you should be part of a church, but it is one important reason. Then we should help you figure out where that place is for you. If, if I can't help you with that, like maybe there's a misunderstanding or difficulty between us that we can work out. I'm, I'm not saying that because I think that's the case. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that there's no room to talk about these things. But my point is, it's not my job as an elder to keep you at my church. It's my job to keep you following Jesus. See? It's not my job to keep you. Count my mighty men. It's my job to help you follow Jesus. And that involves you being committed to some local church somewhere with, with some good elders that you can trust. And there are a few good churches I know of in this area. And there are many more I probably don't know. But those few churches would probably be able to connect you to other churches. I'm not trying to say this. I, I just want you to know that like, I want to be committed to you and Jesus, not you and, and getting you in my church. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. And that's what I believe the Lord wants for you. So that's one thing is be committed to pastoring. Be committed to elders. They're, they're in the Bible. 
It's what God wants for you. He doesn't want you, as I used an analogy before another time, just like jumping from flower to flower like some bee, never really committing to a church, never really committing to pastors, never really committing to people over the long haul. That's not, that's not the New Testament picture of the people of God. Secondly, pray for your pastoral team. Pray for us. Pray for more pastors. Pray for our mutual ability to pastor each other. It's a lot of things. I just mean three things. Pray for your current elder team. It's me and Mike. Pray for Mike as he processes what's the future for him. You know, he's trying to figure out, I'm sure he'd be willing to talk to you about this, but he's processing long-term eldership, interim eldership. What, What does it look like for him? But the point is, we are always in desperate need for prayer. And I know that I said this a couple of weeks ago, but the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So I'm going to squeak for a couple minutes here. I am desperate. Mike is desperate more than we know for your prayers. I'm a full-time pastor. That means I have a super dangerous job that he's going to ask me to give an account for. And I'm a sinner. I'm such a mess. I, I, don't, I hope by God's grace I'm not a disqualified mess. I don't mean that. Like I've said to you guys before, I, don't, I, I really believe I'm trying and fighting. But man, if I don't know, I'm not done with this. Just the sanctification journey. I need your prayers. And I want to say it again. If you're a regular part of this community, I am trying to pray for you by myself or with Mike at least weekly. I am trying to do that. Would you do the same for me and Mike? I'm not too proud to beg. Would you please do that? Would you pray Mike and I would love the Lord and obey him? Would you pray we would love his word and speak it well? And for me to preach it well. Would you pray that we would love our families and care for them faithfully? Would you pray that we'd love his church and watch over it faithfully? And lastly, Pray for more laborers, more, more godly elders. Some of you young men, I really have hope that you're going to end up being elder pastors, whether it's vocational or full-time, here or somewhere else. Please pray for that. Pray that God would send more laborers. That will, that will mean better care for you, and it will mean more room for healthy growth in our church, not unhealthy growth people that we don't really keep track of, that we don't really invest in, that we don't really pray over. That's not the kind of church I want to be part of. But healthy growth needs more care. Lastly, pray for our church to become a church of mutual pastoring. Of mutual pastoring. What I mean is, what I mean when I say Mutual discipleship. I believe in elders and pastors who are particularly gifted and called to do certain things, but I believe it is a very biblical goal to have a church where elders are being outpastored by the church because the church is loving one another so well. Isn't that a beautiful goal for a church? that you, you look at the elders and you're like, oh, yeah, they pastor, but man, they're being outpastored. <laughs> People are just pastoring each other here. A church of real, zealous, loving, 
mutual discipleship, all of us growing in the word of truth, loving that truth, so much that we're just always pointing each other to it. Let's ask for that right now. Lord, bless your children. Protect your church. Lord, as I prayed before, and I pray not, um, I don't think I'm praying this to draw attention to me, but because I really, I want us to all pray this together. Would you please give these people good pastoring? Lord, whether it's through using me or through setting me aside and bringing in better pastoring, whatever you want it to look like, God, would you in your sovereignty just ensure that everyone in this room who's part of this church or whatever part of whatever church you're calling them to, wherever they are, would you ensure, Lord God, would you give them good pastors to watch over their souls, or good elders to watch over their souls? Would you do this? And would you help us be healthier in how we do pastors and think about elder teams? God, help us. I need help. We need help. Thank you, God, for caring about us. Thank you for husbanding your bride. We trust these prayers to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.